Before we continue, one of the ways we keep all of our content for you, the listener, free of charge is our amazing sponsors, and today, Anchor is one of those sponsors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcasts right from your phone or computer. Anchor is going to distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are listened to, and you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. It was a tidal wave of trash-talking, body-slamming, tsunami fury. We're talking Bash at the Beach 1999. You listen to them. Now hang out with us. This is After 83 Weeks with Christy Olson. That's me. You're tuned in to AfterBuzz TV, the ESPN of TV talk. Now, let the buzz Hello, everybody, and welcome to After 83 Weeks. This is the show for fans of 83 Weeks. To come and hang, we talk about the show, we cover all the big reveals, get your reactions, and of course, Eric Bischoff himself will be Skyping in just a little bit later to answer all of your questions. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. We want to thank Eric and Conrad for having us here on the 83 Weeks channel. My name is Christy Olson, as you probably guess. Let me introduce you to the panel tonight, celebrating a big birthday. Woo! He is a... He's a professional wrestler. He knows everything about every match that ever happened. He's got a man bun, and we love him. Say hello. No, say happy birthday to George Hermosa. Oh, thank you, everyone. I'm I'm turning 23 today. You don't believe yes. me? No. Okay, well then, thank you. I feel like even if you reverse those numbers, it's wrong. Oh, wow. 27? <laughs> Good one. Uh... Improviser, comedian, uh, host of the SmackDown After Buzz show, Christian Rosenberg. Not to be confused with Christy Olsen, because that's you. Right. As, as we clarified at the beginning of the show. I'm so glad everybody has yeah. it down. I mean, a lot so, of times okay. they mix us up. Three out of the four. You're probably just wondering who this guy is, but you know, he runs the YouTube channels for all of your fave wrestling veterans. It's Steve Kaufman. Hello. I. Okay. A little bit. That's, that's no, about, I think, three people. That's all three people. Yeah, the live <laughs> studio audience today. The three special. people who came out. Um, I turned 25 for, like, the 10th time recently. Oh, there you go. Super. Well, Bash at the Beach is a whole, like, 20... 20, 20 years old? 20 years old. Math is hard, people. <laughs> and they broke it all down on this episode of 83 Weeks. We want to remind you guys that you can always listen to us on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to them. Make sure you like, rate, and comment. And uh, if you do, do so, we'll shout you out, because we like to do that around here and send in your questions for Eric using hashtag after 83 weeks. But before we get him on the line, I want to hear your guys' thoughts about this episode of 83 weeks and, you know, Bash at the Beach 1999. We always roll it back and take another look at this one. That junkyard match was a highlight for myself. I was going to say, I want to know, know about what, the rest of I want to know what your thoughts of the show was. Yeah, junkyard match. <laughs> I listen. Apparently, I'm all about a junkyard match because I really didn't think it was that bad. It was a little spread out, but other than that, I enjoyed it. I mean, that's what this show was most known for mm-hmm. as as this insane junkyard match. That apparently, from what we learned on the podcast, everyone pretty much died in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like. The amount of injury, like, there were some that we could tell, obviously. You could see um, Silver King covered in blood. 
in, in this match. But there were more injuries than even I realized, like, looking back watching it. It's crazy because, like, you, this hardcore stigma or this hardcore wrestling stigma kind of has this, like, you know, again, like a stigma. But we all hear, like, like they're pretty safe for the most part. Because all it is is punch, 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 you know? Like, maybe props as weapons. And they always, that's why a lot of these matches that we see, like, with guys that can't really go for so long are no-holds-barred matches because they need to cover up the mm. fact that they can't take bumps and do all these things. So it kind of surprised me that this match had so many injuries. Like, I thought they're kind of supposed to be a little bit on the safer side for the most part. I as think, opposed to a t- traditional wrestling match. I think it really shocked me for a pre-taped match. Because usually when you do a pre-taped match, you can gimmick more stuff. Mm-hmm. So got less guys do less stuff that gets them less hurt. So it was shocking to me that they pre-taped a whole match and a bunch of people still got hurt. Well, guys, I actually have my own little juicy scoop to add to this conversation about the Junkyard match. Please. Which I assume is probably going to go on for the rest of the show. <laughs> um, Eric could not remember who the agent was for this one, and he guessed that it may have been Kevin Sullivan, just because of the nature of the match it was. I reached out to Kevin today, and he clarified that it was actually Arn Anderson oh, wow. who produced this match, which surprised me. Right? I think we all just assumed, like, oh, yeah, that's a Kevin Sullivan match. Sorry, I didn't hear the last part. I was picking up that name you dropped. Well, you know. But <laughs> um, No, that does surprise me, because the yeah, Arn Anderson, I wouldn't picture Arn Anderson in an insane hardcore match. Right? I could picture Arn Anderson producing whatever match they tell him to, though, and that's not a knock. That's a good, like, he's that good a producer, that good a road agent, where it's just like, okay. They're in a junkyard. I get it. It's true. It's true. Well, somebody who wasn't being maybe the the good little executive as at the time is Eric Bischoff himself. He kind of fast forwarded fast forwards at one point during the episode and talks about how he got sent home from WCW because he was picking fights with executives he shouldn't have been. He was pushing way too hard, and he said he was basically being unsophisticated and naive. This guy is so self aware. Like, I don't know if I've ever had the pleasure of speaking with someone so much who just really, like, knows who he was and what he did, good or bad. And this was kind of another acknowledgement of that, of like, yeah, maybe it was my fault. But it's crazy because we live in a world where everybody's usually the hero in their own story. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to sit there and say, oh, it was my fault, this, it was my fault. It was always the other guy, you mm-hmm. know. It's real. Like, that's a lot of people that tell stories when it comes to their past, but not Eric. I, 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 every time he kind of admits that kind of those flaws, I feel like... Man, like I wish he, I wish WCW was around a longer. That way, he can maybe we can see. Well, now Eric knows his mistakes. Let's see how it's going to go. And I thought we were going to see that before WWF swooped him and bought them out. The older you get, the more experience you have in, in different things. The wiser, more humble you get. Not Russo though, because you you hear that. Like I, I agree with you for the most I'm, part. I'm talking about in regards to good human beings. Um, <laughs> Shady. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, that's true. I mean, I can, I, I, with people that I've worked with in wrestling, interacting with them, how they review their own matches when, like, heading into the ring, immediately leaving the ring. Guys that I've started with 10 years ago and seeing them go to the ring then and come back now, it's just a whole different persona on what they, because of knowledge Absolutely. you've learned over mm-hmm. time. You've learned your mistakes. You've learned what works, what doesn't. Um, try to teach it to other people, advise it. And and that's exactly Eric reflects on it and can admit, oh, yeah, this was a mistake here. I learned from that. And now when we did this, I do this. Yeah, I like, I like his, he's very low-key knowledgeable about what he did wrong, what he didn't do wrong. And then I think as someone who who's listened to every episode of this podcast, some more than once, because like professionally, I it's kind of like a, he's low key my mentor. 
so a lot of what he's talked about in this episode really really helped me understand like well where were you in 1999 it was does, like, does high school that? I was gonna say is high he school. aware is he aware that uh, that he's your mentor I brought it up to him before like not not like a <laughs> no not in a um it's a one I I've mentioned it as a one-sided mentorship before that, okay good you're acknowledging that no no I'm completely acknowledge that but I um what do you call it? He the Collision in Korea episode. How on this very channel, youtubecom slash 83 weeks you can watch Collision in Korea as it existed on pay per view at that time. Because I found a copy and uploaded it, and it wasn't blocked. So I just did it, and I did that partially because in that episode he talked about how he wanted to do a show in in North Korea, and the government kind of explicitly told him he shouldn't or couldn't, and he just acted like he didn't hear that, and he just did it and saw what happened. So there, I'm there. I'm seeing those parallels. I just really hope we remember to ask Eric if he's aware that he's Steve's mentor. <laughs> okay, if we forget this week, next we week. got to remember next the week list. then. If we forget, <laughs> all right. Well, I'm curious if you guys remember. Take yourselves back many, many years. Your teenagers, your whatever, sitting down, getting all amped up to watch Larry King live because uh. Hulk Hogan is going to be on. And then Hulk Hogan announces that Eric Bischoff wants him to run for president. Oof. Do you recall this? Wasn't Larry King on like really late? He was on pretty late. Yeah, yeah I, I was probably if he in bed. For East kids, Coast or yeah. Central, yeah. Yeah, I was, was, pro- I was probably already in bed. I thought he announced it on Jay Leno. No, Larry King. Mm-hmm. He announced it on Larry King, and then they talked about it for an entire Nitro after that. Because I remember like him coming out at some point with like the red, white, and blue boas. There was but... talk on it. He, Eric mentioned that yeah. Leno thing as well, but the uh, the comments were actually made on Larry King Live. So you guys don't remember that? You don't remember like, oh yeah, I thought Hulk Hogan was going to be the president, and I got excited. I remember him cutting promos about it on Nitro. Was that the okay. time where Shawn Michaels dressed up as Hulk Hogan and the Larry King? No, that no. was. That I was know. When I know. Oh, that oh, was okay. in 2005. And you might be mixing them up with his distant cousin, Mr. America. Oof. <laughs> um, this, I, this was interesting. Like, I do remember even in 1999 when I was totally a full-grown adult, not even in high school yet, I still remember thinking, like, he's not actually going to run for president. See, it's funny. Whenever people said that, I never thought of it as a publicity son. Because I remember Bob really? Backlund did that in, like, 95. And I was like, oh, my God, it's going to be so cool. Maybe WWE, 95. WWE wrestler is going to be a, a president. And not thinking it was, like, a complete, like, just, you know, storyline or whatever. So when Hogan did it, too, I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be cool. 95 I'm going to vote for him because it's going to be in, like, 2004. I, I, I knew that was a publicity stunt because there was a pay-per-view where Bob Backlund was, like, shaking hands and cutting the promo with a guy who kind of looked like Bill Clinton. See, I thought that was <laughs> Oh, it was so obvious it wasn't. I think that's an age. I think that's how old you were in '95. It's similar to how old you were in '99. To how you, how much four you years be- older. Yeah, like how much you, but how much you personally would believe in these kind of an angle, like this believe kind of an angle. All. I was <laughs> a full fledged teenager by 1999, so I was com- I completely saw through the idea that Hulk Hogan was actually going to run for president. Aww. I'm sorry. That's sad. It's kind of I, like not believing in Santa. 95. I totally believed it in 95. I was, I was way younger. Well, we talked a little bit about the junkyard match, but let's really get into the nitty gritty of this match at the beach pay-per-view. Other matches that stood out to you guys besides the, uh, <laughs> the inevitable junkyard match? I mean, it was just a cluster, you know what, of, of a show. Like, Piper and another boxing match against Buff Bagwell. Yeah, like, it's like, we've seen this. We've done this. We've listened to Eric talk about this. I just thought it out. Can we have a... I feel like this this pay-per-view, and someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this pay-per-view and it probably started a moratorium on just, like, no more wrestling... No more boxing matches you know, on wrestling cards. Can we stop... 
Like, I don't think we saw another one until Floyd Mayweather Big Show at WrestleMania, like, 24. I mean, and even then, that was a straight-up wrestling match. Yeah, and even though this was a completely scripted, you know, match, it was, like, three months after the Butterbean Bart Gun from WrestleMania 15. It's like, mm. nobody kind of wanted to see that. <laughs> Don't you think that's sort of almost where we were headed for a while in professional wrestling until Ronda Rousey took her took her bow? That maybe they were kind of trying to do this. Oh, we're gonna do yeah, turn I mean there was the Lions Den match yeah. in, in WWF with Shamrock. So and then, you know, some people were teasing of the MMA world trying to come in. So it kind of switched gears from boxing to MMA, but I mean, to, I mean, to your could, point... We, we could have a match like this in 2019, couldn't we? Maybe the, not a boxing match. Well, the at-bat percentage is so low, I don't think anyone wants to try. Because yeah. even when TNA did it with Kurt Angle and Samoa Joe, like, it wasn't a bad match, but you had the right participants, mm. not an aging Roddy Piper and a... I mean, granted, at the time it was a big buff mark, but, like, looking back, like, a not-so-polished buff Bagwell. Mm-hmm. Like, you got to have like, two real a worked, pros. A worked boxing match is different from a sh- the shoot match that AJ Styles and Samoa Joe did, where they had a wrestling match, and then it's like, well, we're just going to kind of freestyle in the middle of the ring for this portion. Along with that, though, there are now so many wrestlers in NXT remaining up that they constantly talk about in their bios and breaking them down. They have a background in Muay Thai and yes. MMA and this and that. And so they've made these MMA moves in sports entertainment style. Mm-hmm. So so with that, if all of a sudden next week they said, oh, this guy and this guy in a MMA match, no one's going to necessarily really believe it all because now we're seeing all the time cross arm breakers where people are finding their way to get to the rope <laughs> where in UFC you tap out in a second yeah. if a cross arm breaker is locked. So is that detrimental to pro wrestling or is that detrimental to MMA? I think if you present them on the same card, it's detrimental to both. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think it would be different if you had well-known enough MMA fighters come in, but if you have wrestlers doing MMA or wrestlers doing boxing, it, it doesn't play well. It makes the whole card look bad. And that's why And that's why one thing that I do really like on what they did with Ronda Rousey mm-hmm. was whenever she locked her submission in, Whoever she locked it in tapped out immediately. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's probably in Rhonda's contract. <laughs> but, you know, they're not, like, reaching for the ropes or anything like they did for so many others. Right. Right. True that. Well, guys, it's almost time to get Eric on the line. Any uh, thoughts to wrap this up before um, we do? I mean, just the main event. Just how, like, was it? Okay. Can you not just make it a four-way match? Oh, you have a tag team match where the winner of the of the whoever gets a pinfall is champion. So Sting could have been champion by pinning, pinning the opponent, but Kevin Nash was on his team? Like, what, what you just cannot make it a fatal four-way match for, for no, the China championship? For no clear reason, because I remember a match similar to this where it was Vince and Shane McMahon, Vince, Shane McMahon, and, and Triple Umaga, H. And, or, um, the ECW title. Oh, one, where it, was like Vince, it was Vince, Shane, and Umaga versus Bobby, Bobby Lashley. Lashley, so it was a one-verse tag. Or it might have been Bobby Lashley and like some scrubs, but it was a one verse tag, and Vince McMahon became ECW champion because he he pinned somebody. But that's different because like like but you're it, not that's teaming. the story. If somebody was teaming with Bobby Lashley and he becomes champion, how does your teammate become champion? Like how do you guys? WCW is a land of where tag team matches decide the world heavyweight champion and singles matches determine. Well, tag I mean, team but to be fair, like WWF did that too, so I don't want to sit there and tell like, oh well, WCW is so flawed. And, like I just think it's a stupid concept, like the mixed a uh, mixed tag elimination match, but that's did besides. I- Offer a lot of potential for storyline, as Eric pointed out. Doesn't mean he was right. Yeah. All right, well, I'm gonna Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, birthday I'm, boy. I'm, I'm gonna tell him you said zing. that. No. 
in about <laughs> two seconds. Oh, we get them on the line. So everybody, <laughs> stay tuned. We'll be right back with Eric Bischoff. Welcome back. Skyping in now all the way from a hotel room in Stanford, Connecticut. Please welcome the host of 83 Weeks, Eric Bischoff. <laughs> With that big smile we love. How you doing tonight, Eric? I'm doing great, and happy birthday, George. I, oh, I thank heard you. it's your birthday. Oh, wow. Behind you. you did not give it away. Christy's wearing her band leader's jacket. That's she right. looks like she should be, you know, leading the band on Jimmy Kimmel or something. Steve got a haircut. You guys are looking great. <laughs> it's it's all for you, Eric. He didn't say no. anything about me, That was for my birthday. Uh, what about what about That's me? That's the good. Oh, you always uh, look good. Thanks. All right. <laughs> not everybody dressed up for my birthday, but I guess not. Uh, well, you know, you're looking pretty good for a guy who just made a cross-country track. 2,000 miles, 12 states, four pounds of beef jerky, and two cases of water. I'm here! <laughs> just you and the dog, huh? Well, me and the dog and the wife. And I Lori? couldn't leave the wife behind. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a mistake. Yeah. I thought maybe she hopped in a plane. She was like, you two, just go. It's fine. Our season trooper, we love road trips. We live for road trips. So this was a fun one. We got to visit family in Minneapolis and... Just hang out. Pennsylvania was beautiful driving through Pennsylvania. and I mean, the whole thing was really fun. It was great. So are you resting up now, or what are you up to this minute? Um, well, I'm actually watching SmackDown as we speak. I'm, I'm boning up. I'm doing my research. Getting familiar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, just got back from dinner, and uh, I'm going into the office tomorrow. I'm kind of getting oriented and starting the process and kicking it off Monday and Tuesday next week. Wow, how exciting. Well, before we let you step into the future, we're going to take you back to the past a little bit to uh, Bash at the Beach 1999. And uh, I have a, a question for you to kick things off because I have a little uh, tidbit of info for you. And that Junkyard Battle Royal match that you couldn't quite recall who the agent was. Remember, you thought maybe it was Kevin, Kevin Sullivan. It was actually Arn Anderson who produced that one. So I'm just wondering I, if... I, I, I told you that. Uh, Kevin Sullivan. <laughs> oh, well, good for, you know, Kevin's got a good phrase, so that's cool. I'm glad. Yeah, he always recalls everything. Did that, does that jog your memory a little bit? Like, does that make you recall anything about producing the match or working with Arn kind of behind the scenes on how it would all go off? No, I, you know, I, I was kind of a macro manager, not a micro manager. So once an agent like Arn, especially somebody with his experience, or Kevin Sullivan's for that matter, you know, took over a match. You know, they knew what we wanted out of the match. They knew what the story was. We knew what the finish was. I didn't really micromanage that process. Pretty much led it up to them and our director, Craig Leathers, to uh, to deliver it. So I probably wasn't that involved in it. Okay. Well, I enjoyed it, just so everyone knows. I thought it was fun. That Junkyard Invitational was for the very new WCW Hardcore Championship. Did you have any, uh, how involved were in, yeah, how involved were you in creating the WCW Hardcore Championship? And were there any creative goals that you feel may, may or may not have gone fulfilled? 
I mean, you all know if you've been listening to the podcast, which I know you have for a while. I'm, I'm just—I've never been a fan of hardcore style matches, but I also knew that there was a large segment of the audience that was. So I kind of left that in the hands of those who felt more passionately about it than I did. I didn't try to over manage or or get too involved in something that I didn't have a feel for. Um, so in terms of its goals. Look, it's, its goal, the, the Hardcore Championship, was no different than the Cruiserweight Championship or the NWO or the World Heavyweight Championship. Its goal was to increase ratings and help deliver possibly a segment of the audience that might not be interested in some of the other things that we did. Um, whether or not it achieved that goal, I don't know. I guess that's in the eye of the beholder or the ratings gods. I would say that it probably didn't you know, achieve its goal in the long term. But at that time, it would be hard to pinpoint anything that did. So, um, you know, I don't really know how else to respond to that one. So talking about the budget for that match, you completely debunked that. Dave Meltzer said that it was $100,000. But do you remember what that ballpark was, especially with the camera angles, the helicopter, the rental of the place, maybe a ballpark and maybe how much the budget was for that match? Yeah, I can ballpark it. I mean, I certainly don't have the budget sitting in front of me right now. But guess what? We were in a freaking junkyard, and the cars were already there. So it's not like we had to order junk in from Florida. So the props were already there. You know, the helicopter for a a 15 or 20-minute or half-an-hour shoot, probably looked at it 15, 18 grand tops. Uh, Everything else was there. Uh So, you know, to come up with a budget of like $100,000, I mean, like so much of everything else that comes out of his mouth, it's just nonsense and something to fill 10,000 words with and try to make himself look smart while he's fulfilling his agenda. But it was nowhere near a hundred. Look, the entire pay-per-view probably didn't cost us more than $250,000, which included satellite time, a production truck, a production crew, the arena, um, insurance, catering, uh, probably everything but travel was under two hundred fifty or three hundred thousand dollars. So to even suggest that you know a match, especially one in a junkyard on location, <laughs> costs a hundred thousand dollars, just you know it speaks for itself. Well, let's complete an entire round of questions about the junkyard. (laughs) Uh, It's just, it's different. It's a unique match. So we wanted to talk a little more about that one. Um, We mentioned, or you guys mentioned during the podcast, of the extent of all the injuries that occurred during this match. And a number of wrestlers that you might not necessarily consider um, who normally do the hardcore style that were involved in this match. I was wondering, did any wrestler express anger or frustration about the lack of safety or being involved in that type of match with all that danger once it was all done and everyone's trying to heal up from the all the stitches and broken bones and separations and concussions no nobody did and um I don't know, maybe they felt that way, but certainly nobody spoke up. And, you know, it was a little bit of a different attitude or psychology, I think, during that period of time. You know, it was a badge of honor to, to get busted up and torn up and really throw yourself into a match, no pun intended, and put it all out there and leave it all on, on the pay-per-view, so to speak. And if you got hurt, you got hurt. That it was like I said, it kind of got you over with the locker room. It didn't, nobody, you know, they, they may have felt like they wanted to 
bitch and whine about it, but nobody did, at least not to me or anybody that I heard from. There's a lot of interesting tidbits at the beginning of this episode about the demographic you were going at, going for at that time and uh, who was the most valuable demographic. I'm wondering now, as you do research for your future role, what is the demographic for professional wrestling right now? And what is the demographic that people who produce wrestling want? Are they getting those valuable viewers that they're, that they're going after? Sure they are. And while I have not yet been able to dive into, you know, WWE's analytics and their demos and all of that, that's going to be coming in the weeks to come. And we won't be talking about that here. But, you know, I think in general, you can look at, I mean, a lot of this information is is available to the public. If you're really interested in in finding it, you can go to Nielsen Research and you you can find the demos. And I think the big difference between now in you know late 90s uh wcw is that there's you know far more women um that make up the audience now than did in the 90s back in the 90s it was 75 80 percent male um maybe 15 20 percent female um the male audience was generally 35 and up maybe skewed a little bit older than that. Now you've got a much younger general audience. The overall audience is much younger. And I would say at least 50% of that audience is female, Mm -hmm. which is a far more valuable audience uh, composition than we had back in the late 90s. Because men are too easy to get, no pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) But they really are. From an advertiser's perspective, you know, you can find men in sports. You, I mean, you can find men in so many places that it's just not that hard, which which lowers the value of that audience, whereas women and kids are a much harder segment of the audience to um, find and therefore a much more valuable and expensive uh, segment of the audience. So I think the audience composition now is in, in a much more uh, favorable um, position than it was back in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, I, you know, just again, I'm not plugging SmackDown right now. I'm certainly not pimping myself up because I happen to be associated with it. But if you watch the open of tonight's SmackDown, when you saw the uh, town hall meeting with Shane McMahon or whatever, that, whatever they refer to it as, um, you look at all of the talent on that stage, and I said to my wife, it's 50% of that roster is female, mm-hmm. which is awesome. And I think that's one of the reasons why you've got a much uh, more powerful segment of, of the, the audience being female now. Right. Plus, you know, women spend time a little bit here and there. We, but we buy the T-shirts. We do all this stuff. And to kind of follow up on that a little bit, I know you love to host these kind of focus groups back in the day for WCW. Has that sort of gone by the wayside now that we have social media? Do you feel that you would just need to look at Twitter to find out what people think? No, not at all. No, I think I think that would be a huge mistake. A huge mistake. That would be like, and I and I I'm, I'm not not criticizing the question, but it would be like going back to the 90s and saying, well, why do you need to do focus groups and sophisticated research? You could just read a dirt sheet. (laughs) (laughs) The the audience that you have in social media doesn't reflect the broader 
um, audience that watches your show. If there's 3 million people watching your show, a small, small percentage of them are vocal in social media. So if you weight all of your creative decisions and choices based on a small percentage of the people that are the most vocal, you're probably going to miss the mark significantly. You know, and look, here's the challenge with research, and I've seen it work both ways. I've seen, I've experienced, honestly, I, I can say that one of the most um, exciting periods of my career was being involved in the research that we conducted to launch Nitro. Long before we launched the show, not long because we didn't have a lot of time, but months before we launched the show, when I kind of threw myself into that research, I was fascinated by the process. And what I was able to do, because I had enough experience at the time and I was relatively open-minded about it, is I was able to interpret that research. Because research can be very misleading if you don't know how to interpret it. Mm -hmm. it, it, it. It can take you down a rabbit hole if you're not careful. But if you know your product and kind of know your audience and you get a little bit of a feel for what you're doing, you can interpret the data that you're getting back and, and really find a way to, to use it effectively. Now, the opposite of that, I'll never forget this. It might have been about 92, 1992, when WCW decided to do a bunch of focus group and a bunch of research. And the people doing the research had no guidance, so they knew nothing about the business. They were interviewing the wrong focus groups. There was just no methodology behind it, really. It was kind of random. And what made that even worse is the people in WC and Turner Broadcasting at the time that got the research had no idea how to interpret it. And I'll give you one perfect example. There was like a list of all of the characters that the audience said they loved, and they were all baby faces. Oh, and imagine that! Of all of the all of the talent that the audience said we hate those people, and they were all heels, <laughs> which is kind of predictable if you don't know what you're doing and the focus group is set up wrong and everything is wrong on the front end. But here's where it really got funny. I mean, like hilarious funny is that Turner executive said, well, we need to fire all these people that are paid. <laughs> of course. Well, they're getting booed. Therefore, they're, if they're getting booed, they don't belong yeah, on the show, they, clearly. They hate those people. Of course they hate them. We're trying to make them hate them, you knucklehead. Oh, God. That's what I realized. You know, they, I mean, putting, putting data in the hands of the wrong people is like giving a four-year-old kid a loaded gun. It's just dangerous. It's not, it should never happen. You know, but research, but, I, but I, I've learned to really respect research, but I've also learned that in order to use it well, you have to really think through it. You have to find the right companies. You have to make sure your focus groups are composited in a way that it's going to help you get the data that you really want. And um, I look forward, it's one of the things I'm really looking forward to, you know, aside from the creative process, is really taking a deep dive into data. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to not hear what you find <laughs> <laughs> when you do. 
I'll tell you, Christy Benzel, it's got to be a secret. You can text me. So right. while we're getting granular on the business sense, this question came from at Ahmed Johnson 96, who goes by Ahmed Johnson, who goes by Jaguar Slamson. So it's not that it's not that Ahmed Johnson. Don't worry. He and he asks specifically why Haley Joe Osmond's character in the 2000 film Pay It Forward was a WCW fan, not a WWE fan. A little investigation leads me to believe that it was a Warner Brothers property, so it looks like just regular, regular old uh, vertical integration. My question to you is: Were you involved at that point with kind of Warner Brothers properties doing WCW integration, and how involved were you? Like, would you know Pay It Forward was coming out in 2000 and it had WCW footage? Or is there a possibility that it would just happen and you wouldn't? No. That, well, I got shit canned in 1999. So that that should answer your question for you. And when I came back in 2000, it was as a consultant. But, the, you know, the, the, the AOL Time Warner merger had already happened. So there is a chance, albeit I think a slim one, that there was some kind of actual logical corporate integration there I think more than likely it was a director who happened to be a WCW fan at one point and just decided to use that footage that's generally the way that stuff goes you know WCW and, and Warner Brothers were not heavily involved in product integration or uh, product placement is that you know probably fell under at that point so I think it was random more than anything and in 2000 I wasn't anywhere near that type of thing at Warner Brothers. I, I really was just a consultant. So this pay-per-view happened in July of 1999. By this time, NWO was pretty much all but dead. Even though by the end of the year we saw Russo's version of NWO, did you did you officially close the door on the NWO, or was that something that you probably might bring back somewhere down the road had you would have stayed in that job? It's hard to say. I mean, that's a fair question and a good one. It, you know, I, I can't tell you. Um, look, NWO is still viable today. You know, I'm watching the show tonight on USA, and I'm still seeing NWO shirts. You know, 20 some odd years later, so it's it's it 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 certainly had lost a lot of its luster and momentum in 1999. Would I have tried to find a way to revive it? Probably is is the most honest answer I can give you how I would have done it or when I would have done it, you know, only God knows. I don't know. Hmm. Well, along the, along the lines of, of stables and um, bringing them back or what to do with them, I'm curious on the creative process and coming up with the names of stables. Because obviously sometimes they just kind of come up organically in meetings or maybe, you know, I know like the story that they say with Arn Anderson, he says to Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and like, oh, let's go with that. So I'm just curious because on this podcast we had, you know, mentions of the Triad and the West Texas Rednecks and the Nolan Soldier was eventually turned into the Filthy Animals and obviously talking to the NWO. So I'm wondering if you can kind of take us on the, on the backstage on how people come up with a stable name and how they decide if that's the one that's going to stick. You know, it's spitballing for the most part. You know, Filthy Animals was a was was a great you know, example of that. I mean, that, that it, it was a great tag. It was a great brand name for them. It was a great stable name for them because that's what they were. They were like that grunge, you know, segment of society that was kind of anti-social, anti-cultural, anti-everything. And they were filthy. I mean, literally, they were filthy. <laughs> um, 
So that one, it's just, it was organic. And it, 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 it came about as probably spitball. And my guess is uh, um, Ravenhead probably had a lot to do with that. Um, you know, the West Texas Rednecks, come on, that's that, that one's easy. Three you know? <laughs> guys, two beers at a pork shop. That's how that one came about. <laughs> you know, it just, it just, that one was easy. But I, I would say for the most part, they were all organic. Very seldom did anybody come, come to me and say, hey, I've got this idea for a faction and I want to call it this. Now, how do we cast it appropriately? Right. You know? It's usually as a result of the casting, the name, just kind of the brand or the whatever you want to call it, just kind of evolves naturally. Well, it's now come up a couple weeks, you working as a consultant in the past for different companies. What That sounds like a real fancy, fun job that doesn't have a ton of responsibilities. Like, what was that like? Is it just you sit and you watch the show, and then if you have thoughts, you call Dixie Carter, or you call whoever and say, hey, I think you guys should do this instead. Or, you know, you mentioned that you didn't want to get too into the executive side at TNA. What exactly was your role when you were working as a consultant? What did you do? Well, it, it morphed, you know, when I, when I was first hired by TNA, and I, you know, in fairness to everybody at TNA, the Carters in particular, they didn't want me. They, they did not want Eric Bischoff on the payroll. They didn't want to have anything to do with me. They wanted Hulk Hogan, but the challenge they had is that Hulk Hogan knew that there was nobody in TNA who could find their ass with both hands and a compass. <laughs> so when it came to creative, so he wasn't willing to to join TNA unless he had somebody there that was watching over at least his creative. That's all he cared about. He didn't care what anybody else did, but because of the nature of the makeup of the creative, including you know Vince Russo, Hulk didn't want to have anything to do with them. He didn't trust them. So his deal was like, look, if you want me, you got to hire him. So I was like, I was like the Hulk Hogan tax. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. So it was a and, fancy, fun job with very little responsibility. Well, I know I did have a lot of responsibility because, you know. Everything that TNA did once they hired Hulk Hogan all centered around Hulk Hogan. So all of a sudden, I went from okay, I'll oversee Hulk Hogan's career to holy shit. Everything that's going on is Hulk Hogan related, and I ended up getting more involved with creative than I ever thought I would. And then I started liking it. Oh, and then good. once I started liking it, I kind of threw myself into it, not because I had to just because it was fun. And over a period of about six months or a year, then I started looking around the room and realizing there was only one or two people there, and Vince Russo wasn't one of them, that really knew what they were doing or had a feel for anything. And then I just got more and more and more involved. So what started out as a Hulk Hogan tax, by the time well, 2013, 2014 rolled around, I was pretty much wanting creative. He and myself and Bruce Pritchard. So, but it didn't start out that way. And it wasn't my responsibility. I didn't have to do it. I could have easily said, eh, nah. <laughs> but, you know, you get into it. It starts being fun. And, you know, you start feeling responsibility for things that are going on. And it just kind of happened. But I didn't do it because I had to. And I didn't necessarily do it 
because contractually I was obligated to. I just did it because it needed to be done. I mean, you, you know, look, one of the things that I, you know, look, a lot of things came out of TNA that I really liked, you know, um, whether people agree with this or not, the Aces and Eights storyline, at least the structure of that storyline, the evolution of that story, the relationship between Brooke Hogan and Bully, and how it affected Hulk Hogan, all of the things, if you go back and really watch that story, and then you also kind of dig into the analytics a little bit and see what happened to W, or excuse me, TNA's pay-per-view buy rates at that time. Look at what happened to TNA's house show business at that time. Look at what happened when TNA finally went on the road for the first time, legitimately, as a touring, you know, entertainment property at that time. All of a sudden, it started really growing. So, and if you talk to Bully, he'll tell you the same thing. This is one of the best storylines ever happened in that company. And you can quantify it if you really want to do the work. So there was a lot of good stuff that came out of it. Being able to work with my son, you know, and, and, I, and I know it's, you know, not a cool thing to say. And what's the term? Nepotism. Nepotism. You know, it is, it was. I admit it. I did it. I do it again. Right? It's, it's okay with me. Um, but it was a blast. You know, it meant a lot to my son. It meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to my wife. It was a, it was a box that we got to check. And I'm very grateful for that opportunity. But aside from some of those things, it was embarrassing for me to be associated with a company that was that inept and, and missing so many beats. And what really frustrated me is that just the, the opportunities that they had to change things. You know, the relationship with Spike TV could have been so much better than it was if it wasn't for the the jealousy and the greed and, and some of the other really horrible decisions that took place on the other end of that, that decision-making process that I wasn't involved in. Um, some of it was so embarrassing, but there were also some really good points that, I, that I'm grateful for. Wow. I think hey, we're all, thank we're all, you for that. We're all waiting on that TNA episode. <laughs> <laughs> You just got it, brother. Okay. There's nothing more That's to talk it. about. Okay. Who needs Conrad? We got it. Yeah. I'll label the I'll label the clip as such. Uh, <laughs> speaking about Hulk Hogan, similar to him running for president, or you possibly faking your own faking your own death, are there any other work of the media style storylines that may have been pitched that were big and grand like that that never made it off the ground? Oh. No, I mean faking my own death was God. I wish I would have been able to do that. I really do. I, really, I mean, I had that thing so figured out. I mean, I really, really had that one figured out, how to pull it off and make it actually, make people actually believe it happened. And I know it was distasteful, which makes it even better. Because <laughs> <laughs> it would have gotten more of a reaction. Um, I think the only other thing that I did, and I, talk, I touched on it, I think, on one of the more recent shows I did, I, we did a bunch of them together, so I'm kind of a little confused. But, you know, when we had Carl Malone and Dennis Rodman working together in a match, and they were actually, you know, playing against each other in the NBA playoffs, and I asked them both to, if the opportunity came about, and they were not, you know, the, the clock had stopped, so it didn't affect the outcome of the game, if there's any way that they could kind of put on a little bit of a show, you know, off court and just throw punches at each other, push and shove or whatever. I kind of threw that out there and it worked. 
Uh, so at this pay-per-view, we saw Randy Savage become WCW World Heavyweight Champion, but then the very next day, Hulk Hogan beat him for the championship. That happened before at Spring Stampede 98. Savage wins, Hogan beats him for the next day. Not so much about Hogan, but what was it about Savage that you guys didn't really see him as a long-term champion or maybe somebody that can be a champion for weeks or months at a time, not just for one day losing it to Hulk Hogan the next day? You know, Randy, I've said this before in, in previous podcasts. Some guys need titles. Some guys don't. I always believe that, you know, in the long term, in general, not always, but in general, he, heels make better champions because everybody aspires. They want to pay to see the babyface beat the champion. You want the good guy to win. And the more difficult it is for the good guy to win, the more you want it. Now, you've got to balance it out, obviously. But, you know, Randy chasing the title seemed to work better than Randy having the title, if that makes sense. It does. So... This coming Monday, apparently there's a reunion on Monday Night Raw, one in which one Eric Bischoff has been advertising the commercials to appear at. I'm just curious, because you've got, done all these you know, signings and, and events where you met up with other legends. I'm just kind of curious, besides the usual ones that you'll see, you know, Kevin Nash will be there, Scott Hall will be there. We know you see them. Is there any specific legend that you might you've not seen in the wild that you're looking forward to catch up with on Monday? You know, I haven't seen Steve Austin in a couple of years. You know, we used to bounce into each other quite quite often when I was in L.A. and I was doing a lot of business in L.A. and had an office there, but that's been now three or four years. So I haven't – we've texted back and forth a couple times, you know, especially recently. Mm-hmm. But um, I haven't seen him in a long time, so I'm looking forward to seeing Steve. I haven't seen Hulk now in a few months, so it'll always be good to see him. Um you know, I'm looking for, you know, Rick, I always love seeing Rick. I saw I was with Rick in England a couple months ago and I had a blast and I always enjoy being around Rick. So, you know, there's nobody in particular, I think, other than Steve Austin who I haven't seen quite recently. So I'm looking forward to seeing Steve. Wait a minute, Eric. Were you the Hulk Hogan tax again this time around? <laughs> Like, Hulk hasn't been back that long. Did it just take them a while for uh, for it to get publicized that you were coming too? No, I don't know. Not quite? Okay. (laughs) Just making sure so all the trolls can't make that uh, distinction and not ask you. All right. (laughs) Well, uh, we are out of questions, and we should probably let you go ahead and uh, watch SmackDown Live. Yeah, I'm watching it right now. Oh, my gosh. We're seeing flashbacks from Raw. This is awesome. Ron Strowman's pretty cool. There you go. (laughs) He's a big guy. He's a big guy. (laughs) Anyway, I mean, I I could sit and watch you watch SmackDown, but I guess uh, that won't that won't go over very well. So thank you so much, Eric, for uh, taking time again to hang out with us. Please enjoy yourself. Uh, We wish you the best of luck and uh, we hope to talk to you again next week. I look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Eric. Bye. All right. Wow. We got some juicy stuff. there. Yeah, we did. That's great. And, uh, yeah, no, no, more, no more thoughts on that. I mean, it was some good stuff. Other, other than happy birthday, George. Yes. That's right. I mean, I assume that we probably opened the show with a whole lot of that. So, <laughs> he wants us to close us. As, he wanted us to close it as well. Well, you know what? You can follow me on Twitter at Rosenberg, Instagram, the Rosenberg, and you can come celebrate 
George's birthday this Friday at Wrestling Pro Wrestling in Burbank. I mean, I'm going to be there as well. So if you really want to go for me, and we can just say that you're going to say happy birthday to George, that's cool. But um, you know, check it out and twitch.tv slash WPW. You can follow me at Hermosa, G-H-E-R-M-O-Z-A. We just covered Extreme Rules this past Sunday. You can see our thoughts. Uh, me, Flobo, and this guy named Jack Former. He's good people. He's good. Jumping Jack Farmer. Where would they see that at? <laughs> After Buzz TV. All right. Steve Kaufman? Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter almost exclusively. I'm at Steve Kaufman. That is K-U-F-M-A-N-N. Sadly, I will not be making Wrestling Pro Wrestling this Friday because I will be in San Diego Comic-Con the entire weekend. So come find me there. Everyone else will be there. <laughs> and for those of you who are just sitting around not going to Comic-Con this weekend, you guys can always hit me up at Christy Reports and send in your questions for Eric using hashtag Ask. Oh, why do I can never remember this? You know what? Just send them to me directly. And uh, make sure you have a great week, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Our founder, Kevin Undergaro, and me, Maria Menunos, would like to thank you for tuning in to AfterBuzz TV. Remember, we're not just the first. We're the biggest in the world, and we're the only destination for all your favorite TV shows. Whatever you crave, we've got it. So go to AfterBuzzTV.com and check out our lineup. Buzz you later. <laughs> the views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.